great to see you out tonight and uh, to spend time together on these Sunday evenings and these Sunday mornings looking at, um, at the Bible, the Word of God. Our series over these seven weeks is called Inspired because the Bible says of itself in 2 Timothy 3 verse 16, all scripture is inspired, is God-breathed. And uh, we believe that the Bible is breathed by God. These are the very words of God. And we have considered and we will consider kind of how, how God is the architect of all of these words. God is behind every one of them. And we've been thinking these last few weeks of how the Bible is a library, the Biblia of, of Scripture, the 66 books, of 40 authors over 1,500 years, three different languages, but in all of it, God is behind it. God breathed it. God spoke it out. And also, the idea of the title inspired is, we want you to be inspired. We want ourselves, we want to be inspired afresh, to, to want to, 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 to desire to pick up this word of God, which is living and active and transformative, and to find it afresh. Some of us have been Christians for a long time, and, and to be inspired afresh to come and to meet and to encounter Jesus the Word of God, in the written Word of God. And so we're hoping that as we consider this Word of God over the mornings and the evenings for these several weeks, that we will truly be inspired. What we're doing in the evenings, basing our teaching on this timeline from the Bible course, is we're considering the great story of the Bible. We said in our first week of teaching that the Bible is revelation, the Bible is also uh, is story. The Bible is story. And uh, it is a great story. From the beginning to the end, there is a great story that is told. And if you didn't see it, uh, what we did last Sunday morning is we, we took you through the whole story from Genesis to Revelation. You can see it online just to see the overview. And what we're doing in the evenings over these several weeks is we are um, zooming in on different elements of the story and then hopefully having a better understanding of it all. So that's what we're doing uh, these evenings. We reminded ourselves as we started this of, uh, of Sam from Lord of the Rings, who says uh, in that story, he says, I wonder what sort of a tale we have fallen into. I wonder what sort of a tale we have fallen into. There is a story in Lord of the Rings that they've been swept into. Life is a story. For every one of us, sometimes life feels like it's comedy, doesn't it? And uh, we laugh, we laugh at life. We laugh at moments of life which are just funny and hilarious. And uh, sometimes our own life or sometimes we look on. And the best comedians, of course, what they do is they pick out moments and they highlight them and they, and they hold up a mirror to our behaviors. Sometimes life, the story of life is funny and it's a comedy. Sometimes life feels like a tragedy. And uh, the story that is told around our lives and around some people's lives, it feels like tragedy. And you watch certain lives unravel and, uh, and it feels so sad. Sometimes life feels like a soap opera and uh, we feel like we're in some kind of soap opera. We're in Coronation Street or Emmerdale or whatever we watch these days. And uh, we consider, as we said, as we try and make sense of the world that we live in, the philosopher that looks on and, and says, why is the world so good? And uh, we, I think to myself, Louis Armstrong, what a wonderful world. And uh, we look at the world sometimes and we think it is so good, it is so beautiful, it is breathtaking. There are moments like that. We were in the Yorkshire Dales a couple of years ago and, uh, we got, and it was snowing and we got lost. And we drove around the corner up on this mountaintop and we were just absolutely awe-inspired at the view in front of us, the, the snowy fields, the rolling dales. Uh, it was just the most beautiful, breathtaking scene that we stumbled upon, God's handiwork, God's fingerprints, God's beauty. And we look sometimes at the world and we think, it is so beautiful, it is so breathtaking, it is so wonderful. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. And at other times, a philosopher and we ourselves would look upon the world and we would say, why is the world so broken? Why is the world so twisted? We look at the conflict all around at the moment and uh, the, 
the major conflicts in the Middle East and, and it's still ongoing in the Ukraine, which has been pushed out of, of uh, the news. And, uh, and, and we look all around us and, and nearer to home sometimes and we think, what a mess and why is the world so broken? And as we started to look at the story of the Bible a couple of weeks ago, we started in the book of Genesis and, and the beginning of the story and in the beginning, once upon a time, God created and and we, we saw that God made everything and he saw that it was good. And when he made humankind, uh, man and woman in his own image, God said, let us, let us make man, let us make woman in our own image. And God saw that it was very good. And we considered the, the story of creation, Genesis 1 to 11, and, uh, and the creation. And, and then the fall, the temptation of the serpent and the fall of mankind and, and humankind and the disobedience towards God and and what God made us for this amazing relationship with himself, to walk with him and to talk with him and to experience re relationship with him, to, to glorify God, to enjoy him, that was broken in that moment. We were banished from the garden, from the presence of God. And, but even then, we saw at the start of our story, we saw that God had a plan from the very beginning and we considered Genesis 3.15 and, and the fact that even in the beginning, God had a plan and and God said that, that uh, speaking to the, to the serpent, he said that, that one would come that would crush his head. And, uh, and even then, God was planning a plan of, of salvation. And so we considered uh, the story of Genesis, and we, did, uh, we looked at Genesis 1 to 11 and the story of creation. We looked then at the, at the covenant that God came and he made with Abraham and in Genesis 12, and and that God decided that through this one family, through this one man, that God had a plan, a covenant, an agreement that he was going to restore mankind. He was going to bring a plan of rescue and restoration. And it would all start through this one family, Abraham. And God came and he promised Abraham, I'm going to bless you, Abraham. I'm going to bless your offspring. Those that bless you will be blessed. Those that curse you will be cursed. I'm going to give you offspring that will be more than the stars in the sky, more than the sand on the ocean sea on the on the ocean shore, and and God promised that He would bless Abraham and through Abraham all the nations, and that He would create for Himself a covenant people. And Abraham had Isaac, and Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob was renamed to Israel, and Israel had twelve sons. And uh, of those twelve sons, he had a few favorites, and he had particularly his favorite was Joseph, who he put on him a coat of many colors and he favored him and his brothers were jealous of him. And we read the story in the Bible then of, of uh, Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And we considered um, how then Joseph was taken as a slave down into Egypt, sold by his brothers into slavery, um, and how he was taken into captivity and uh, and off to Egypt, schlepped off to Egypt, where um, through God's uh, ordained plans, he became the prime minister of Egypt, and he was used to save many peoples who came and bought grain off him that he had stored up because he knew God had told him that there would be great famine in the land. And so we have this ongoing story of, of uh, the grandson and the great-grandson of, of Abraham used uh, used by God to rescue people and to rescue the world. And, uh, and the people of Israel followed him down into Egypt. And for, and for many years, they started to prosper and to grow. And, and the Egyptians got very afraid of the, of the Israelites. And, uh, and they started to put them under slavery and to oppress them. And for 400 years, uh, the people of Israel were uh, were caught in slavery in Egypt. And then God uh, ordained Moses to come and to set his people free. And, and Paul considered that part of our story in the Exodus and the Passover and the Passover lamb and the pointing to one that would come, the end of the story, the salvation that would come through the lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. And Moses came and he brought the people out of Egypt and uh, he delivered them through the plagues that God sent to the people of Egypt. And he brought them to the cusp of this promised land that God had promised Abraham, uh, the, the, the land of promise. And, and Moses brought them to the edge of that land, but he couldn't, 
take them in. And then Joshua, uh, Joshua uh, led the people into the promised land. And, and God gave Joshua various commands that, uh, that he would lead the people into, uh, into this promised land. And, that, and that's where we were at in our story, this great story um, as we've looked over these last couple of weeks, the, the exodus, the Passover, the, the plagues, the, uh, bringing them to the, to the cusp of the promised land. And as we got to the book of Joshua, um, we got to this moment that Paul highlighted this morning in his message in Psalm 1, uh, success or failure, uh, blessing or curse, success or failure, depending on whether we follow the word of God. And, and Joshua gave a valedictory speech at the end of Joshua. And he said these words. He said, be very strong. Be careful to obey all that is written in, in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or to the left. Israel was to possess the land of Canaan and was not to compromise with the surrounding nations, with all of the nations that were around them. Uh, God gave them very clear commands, and through Joshua, he said, follow this word of God. Do what God has told us to do, and we will prosper. We will do well in the land. Now, the Canaanites who were all around Israel at this time, and uh, who they were to drive out at God's command, worshipped various gods, gods like El and Asherah and Baal, and, um, and they followed cultic rituals, they had shrine prostitutes, they sacrificed children, they were very corrupt in their practices. And Israel faced various threats as they came into the promised land as recorded in Joshua. There were internal threats that they would compromise with the nations around them, the Canaanites, and the gods that they worshipped, El and Asherah and Baal, that they would they would somehow allow themselves to be compromised and internally. They also faced external threats from their enemies, the, the Philistines, who were, who were vicious kind of enemies of the Israelites. And their most famous fight, of course, Goliath, the giant. And to deliver the people from these threats, God raised up various leaders. And these leaders, they were called... Uh, judges, not judges as we would understand them these days with a gavel and a wig, but judges and the leaders of the people, the military leaders of Israel. And, and as, as the Israelites expanded and as they took on the land and as they, as they faced their various enemies, God raised up uh, these various leaders, these various judges. Now, Judges, the book comes with a parental warning it contains extreme violence, this book. Gore and bloodshed. It's probably the most brutal book in the Bible. It's descriptive and it's not prescriptive. And we must understand as we read the story, as we read the story of Israel, this covenant people, the people through which from Abraham that God said, I'm going to bless you and, I'm, and through you and through this special people, I'm going to bless the whole of the world. But they started to unravel the Israelites in their behaviors and in, as they compromised with the Canaanites all around them. And as we see some of their behaviors, it's important to realize when we're reading in the Bible that sometimes we're reading narrative. We're reading something that's describing a behavior. It's not biblical behavior in that sense. And, and the Judges shows us, this book of the Judges, shows us a downward spiral in the people of God um, finishing at the end of this book with gang rape and with murder. It is, a, it is truly kind of horrendous story, but it ultimately tells us of the ultimate failure of, of the people of Israel, of the nation of Israel, this special people. Now, there were 14 judges in all uh, that are recorded in, in these stories, in these cycles of leadership that God would bring in a judge. And we have, um, and we'll put up on the screen the different types. The, there was Othniel, and there was Ehud, and there was Deborah. This is from uh, the Bible Project. And they were pretty good judges. We see kind of a downward spiral from, from them. Ehud is an interesting judge. Um, he was used uh, to uh, take on Eglon, the king. And if you read this story, it's quite, it's quite gross, really. Ehud, uh, we read of Ehud that he was left-handed. 
And uh, he went into Eglon, who was oppressing the people of Israel. And he tricked Eglon. Eglon, it says, was extremely fat, it says in, the, in Judges. And Ehud, the left-handed judge, goes in and, he, and uh, he meets him with his representation and they leave. And then he comes back and he says, I need to speak to you privately about a matter. And he goes into the room, uh, shuts the door with this king, Eglon. And then he, because he's left-handed and, and it's unexpected, he takes out of, from his right thigh, he takes out of his dagger, his dagger and he stabs Eglon the king. And, the, and it describes in great detail how the sword goes into the fat and then the fat closes over the sword and it comes out the back and Eglon falls dead and then the servants and then uh, Ehud makes his escape and the servants come and they don't want to disturb the king Eglon because they think he's having a wee and so they wait outside for the longest time and by the time they go in they realize that he's been murdered and that um, Ehud has escaped. And so, if we put that slide up again, we have these stories of the different judges uh, throughout this book, Othniel and Ehud and Deborah, the female uh, judge. And, um, but then they're, they're pretty good judges. But then we go on to the story of Gideon, and uh, he's an okay judge. Um, and then we move on, and there's a spiral kind of to Jephthah, who ends up sacrificing his daughter um, on, a, on an oath that he makes and uh, is not a good judge. And then we end up to, with Samson, who's known for his strength, but ends in ignominy and failure and violence. And so we see this kind of story of, of leadership. And there's a cycle. It's like a scratch CD or a, or a, or a DVD, that if you remember those. Um, and when you got a scratch on it, and it would just play around and around or a record. And this circle in our, in our timeline, this circle here of the judges highlights this circle of failure. And it's, it's shown in the Bible in, in chapter 3 of Judges where the, it's, there's rebellion. The people rebel. The Israelites rebel. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, um, it says in, in Judges 3 verse 7. And then there's in this cycle that happens again and again and again with the judges... In verse 8 of chapter 3, there's judgment. The Lord sold them into the hands of their enemies. And then in verse 9, there's deliverance again. And the Lord raised up a deliverer, one of the judges. And then in verse 11, there's peace for a while. So the land had rest from war. And this repeats and repeats and repeats. Rebellion against God. And then the judgment of God. And then a savior, a judge is raised up. And then a time of peace. But all the while, there's this cycle of failure. And there's a phrase that comes up again and again in the judges. And it says that the Spirit of God came upon that, that particular judge, empowered them to lead the people. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon and empowered them supernaturally to do something, to lead God's people in and through this moment of salvation. And there, there was a pointing to one, a savior who would be empowered to save his people. But these judges, in their humanity and in their failure, they never quite fulfilled the mandate to uh, rescue God's people from their rebellion and from their failure that happened in the, in the garden, this broken relationship with God. The judges in and, and these cycles, they could never quite break the cycle. And it's like that in our lives at times and in the lives of people that we go through these cycles of failure and, and regret and, and we can't seem to break out of it. Repeat offending, a downward spiral, destructive cycles. And the question that's asked, I guess, in Judges and in the story as it develops and the failure again and again and again of the covenant people of God is who will deliver us from this mess? Who will rescue us? For a while, it looked like it was going to be Moses, and it was going to be Joshua, and then it was going to be the judges. And yet the people seem inherently unable to follow God's purposes, to follow this book of the law. And so the question is asked ultimately, who will deliver us? Who will rescue us from this cycle of destruction? 
And it's a question that the Apostle Paul asks in the New Testament. He says, when he looks at himself and his own cycle of failure and mess-ups and doing things he doesn't want to do and not doing things he wants to do, and he says, oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? And then Paul exclaims, thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. The message version says, I have tried everything and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't, it that, isn't that the real question? The answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. And so even in, in the judges and the failed cycles of, and even these heroic judges, those that came and, and did exploits for God and were empowered by the Spirit of God, they still could not deliver the people. And there's this downward spiral of destruction that we see ending in the most horrendous stories in this book of Judges. We see also in this time the book of Ruth and the story of redemption of a, of a, of a foreigner in a foreign land and a kinsman redeemer. And there's a, a story that hones in there that we won't go into in too much detail uh, tonight. The judges couldn't ultimately deliver from this cycle of failure. And Judges ends with a phrase that kind of sums up the mess that the people are in. And it says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So there's chaos and there's the mess that the people find themselves in and, and the failure of these cycles. And enter Samuel. Samuel is the last of the judges. And he kind of transitions us in First and Second Samuel and, and, and then there's First and Second Kings and there's Chronicles in this part of our story. Samuel transitions us from the time of the judges to the time of the kings. There was no king and the people did whatever they want and they came to Samuel and they said, give us a king. We want a king. We want to have a king like all the nations around us have a king. And uh, Samuel brings together the three big leadership roles of the Old Testament, the prophet, the priest, and the king. And he anoints with oil the first king of Israel called Saul. And Saul is known to be tall and handsome and muscly. And on the outside, he looks like a great king. He looks like a great leader. And he started off well enough, but he was insecure and he was angry. And he disobeyed God. And he became insanely jealous of a young leader called David, who started to receive the adulation and praise of the people. People can be so fickle at times. Have any of you watched the Beckham documentary on Netflix? Uh, Is that what it's called? Netflix. Netflix. Just had one of those moments where I completely forgot the word. <laughs> you have a lot of those, Dave, don't you? <laughs> If you watch that story of Beckham, uh, it shows you how fickle people are. The story, um, David Beckham, those of you who remember, he, he kicked somebody in a, in a World Cup game, an important World Cup game. I think it was against Argentina. And he got sent off. And he was absolutely vilified. The people hung up effigies of him. Uh, they, they screamed at him. They sent him death threats. He got bullets in the post. And... Um, and the people were so fickle the way they, they adulated and worshipped him for a while. And then he was persona non grata. And for the longest time, they, they screamed vitriol at him. It, it, just, it was horrendous as you watched kind of it played back, what, it, what he had to put up with. It's just over a game of football. It was crazy. And then fast forward a little bit. Uh, playing Greece, qualifying for the World Cup, last kind of minute of time. And, and Beckham curls the ball into the top corner of the goal, and he's, he's up there before the crowd, and the crowds are cheering, and, and Beckham is wonderful, and he's amazing, and we love David Beckham, and then fast forward to the Champions League final, and uh, the 1999, my brother was there, Barcelona, and uh, this amazing moment where they get the treble, and, and I, you just watch this kind of 
adulation and then hatred and then adulation and you see it all the time in society and you see it in fame and in celebrity and you saw it in David's time and in Saul's time and and Saul was the best thing since sliced bread for a while. We want a king, we want a king. But then he's, he's kind of surpassed by this young underling, David. And the people start to sing a song. It's not a very catchy song, to be honest. It's recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 18, when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, that's Goliath. The women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs, with timbrels and lyres, and as they danced, they sang, and here it is, the song. Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands. It's really catchy, that one. <laughs> and we read on, then, Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And David would ultimately become the most famous of Israel's kings and the least likely candidate, the youngest of eight brothers, a bit of a runt of a, of a boy on the outside. But it says about David, contrary to Saul, that God didn't look as men look on the outside. God looked on the inside and God saw his heart and God saw um, that he was a man after his own heart. And there's a moment um, where David is called by Samuel, the prophet, and anointed the king. And there's an anointing ceremony, an anointing of oil. The Spirit of God rushed upon David, and David became Israel's king. He became the anointed one. And there was something about anointing a king, and it's followed on to this day of those of us who watched the coronation that most holy moment where they go behind the screen, it's too holy to see, and, uh, and the king or the queen is anointed with oil, it's still practiced today, and they become the king, the queen, the anointed one of God. And David became the anointed one of God. The verb to anoint in Hebrew is mashiach, from which we get the word messiah the anointed one. The Jews lived in hope that the ultimate Messiah King, the ultimate anointed one, would come and would save them. And David was the anointed one, anointed king. And one would come who would stand up one day in Luke chapter 4, and he would open the scriptures, and he read these words. He said, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to Jewish ears. This was a claim to be the Messiah. Jesus Christ. Christ is not Jesus' surname. Christ means in Greek the anointed one. Jesus, the anointed one, Messiah in Hebrew. Both mean the anointed one. Christ is not his surname. It's the equivalent of king, of king of kings. Queen Victoria said, the former queen of England said, I wish to be alive when Jesus Christ returns that I might be the first monarch to take off my crown and lay it at his feet. You see, King David foreshadowed the Messiah, the anointed one. He was the anointed one, small a, small o. And the people looked to David and, and those in his lineage to rescue them, just like the judges. And yet they continued with this failed cycle. And King David was a good king in many ways. He took on Goliath. And he stepped into battle on behalf of the people. He represented those that couldn't fight for themselves. He won a decisive victory for them, which is what Jesus did for us. He represented us. He fought a battle against sin and death and Satan that we could not fight, we could not win. Jesus went out and represented us and won on our behalf. So David was made 
first of all the king of Judah, and then he was made the king of all of the 12 tribes and all of Israel. And there was a new era of stability that's recorded during his time. There was a new capital city, which was Jerusalem. And David brought the tabernacle there, and he brought the Ark of the Covenant there, and he danced in celebration and abandoned himself to worship God. And these were great times. And all of this, his reign is recorded in these books in First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles from different perspectives and different angles. And he had some great victories and successes, but ultimately, like every other human leader of the Bible and like every judge before him, he failed. He was the anointed one, but he failed. He led the people, but he could not ultimately save the people by himself. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. He had her husband murdered. His son rebelled against him. His family fell apart. And his kingdom was shaken. And the people were still waiting for that restoration of a relationship with God, which we had in the beginning, which was broken, and which God said he would restore right then in Genesis. And through these cycles and these covenantal relationships, we could never quite get there. And Isaiah the prophet spoke out these words, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. There was one that would come in the lineage of David. It was called the son of David, Jesus Christ, the anointed one. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. The spirit of the Lord came upon the judges for a while, but they failed. The spirit of the Lord came upon David and the kings, but they failed. But the spirit of the Lord would be upon him, the son of David, the one who would reign forever, the one who would, of, of his government and peace that would be no end. And so out of David's um, adulterous relationship with Bathsheba was born one called Solomon. And he was known for his wisdom and his wealth and his worship. And God said, make a wish, Solomon. And Solomon asked for wisdom. Do you remember our wisdom pyramid that we taught about on a Sunday evening? You know, the book of James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask for it and God will give it to you. We considered in that series, in getting wisdom, that we invert this pyramid so often in our perusal of the internet and social media and books and, and all of the things that feed into us. But if we have the Bible at the base of our lives, we will grow in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. Solomon asked God for wisdom. And there followed an era of prosperity uh, in this time, Israel's glory days, if you like. They built, Solomon built a huge palace. He built a temple for God, an amazing temple. And this temple, it had outer precincts where the Gentiles could go, the non-Jews. They could go into the outer precincts, but they couldn't go into the temple itself. And then there were the outer and the inner courts. The Jews, they could go into the outer and the inner courts. They could come in further into the temple which is where the presence of God was. But they could only go so far, they couldn't actually go fully in. And then there was another layer of kind of access, which was called the holy place. And only the priests could serve there, the ones that were anointed and set apart to come into the holy place. And then there was the holy of holies, the most holy place. And only the high priest could go in there, and only once a year. And it wasn't just a building, this temple. It marked the presence of God. And in Second Chronicles, we have the dedication of the temple by Solomon. And the glory of God came down so powerfully, the priests couldn't stand. It was like a cloud of glory. The presence of God was so tangible, was so real to the people of Israel. And they bowed down and they worshipped God. And they loved his presence. But in the New Testament, as we look at the temple, there is a relocation of the temple of God. And it becomes not a building, but it becomes a people. And it becomes you, and it becomes me. 
Don't you know, Paul said, as he wrote to a, a Greek church, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? And that God's Spirit dwells in your midst. It's a stunning claim. And Peter, when he wrote his letter, he said, and you, you're living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. And God fills these communities, this community, this people of God, you and me, with the same glory that he filled the temple. The same glory of God. And but there are no more divisions in this temple, in this people, in this community of God. The gospel has come. Jesus has come and he's broken down those dividing walls between Gentiles and Jews, males and females and the inner courts. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, Paul says to the Galatians. There's no more slave or free. There's no more male or female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There's open access to the presence of God. The curtain temple has been torn in two. The holy of holies has been opened up through Jesus Christ and we have unlimited access to God's presence. The temple in the Old Testament, it was a bit like Buckingham Palace. I was there fairly recently, and you, you can look at the gates of Buckingham Palace. You can go, and you can stand there, you can look through the gates at this, um, this home of, of royalty. But you can't go in, you can't just wander in. You can peer, you can look, but you don't have access. And uh, Andrew Ollerton of, of the Bible Society tells the story of his friends, Christian friends who lived near Balmoral, the Scottish castle, the Scottish home of the royal family. And one time, uh, still as Queen Elizabeth was alive, uh, they were having a, a royal um, ball. And they invited this family, uh, Sylvia, she was called, and her husband. And, and they got invited to Balmoral, to this ball. And they got to know the royal family. And and the royal family made it known they would, be, they would like to visit them in their home. They would like to come to their house. <laughs> You've come to our house, Balmoral. We'd like to come, we'd like to come back to yours for dinner. And uh, it's not quite on the same <laughs> level. Can you imagine? And Sylvia, this lady, she, she, she recalls how she went outside to pick some flowers to put on the table to have tea with the queen and she said she was so terrified of the queen coming that she was physically shaking as she was picking these flowers to put on the table to have tea. And she felt in that moment, she felt God speak to her. And she felt him say, I am the king of kings. And I am with you every single day. And she felt from that moment, a moment of her peace, it's just the queen. <laughs> That's the Queen of England. I'm with the King of Kings every day. I have full access to him. There's this amazing story that we find ourselves in, that the cycles that we will find throughout of all of God's covenant peoples and the judges and the kings and the anointings and the empowerings, but it was never enough until Jesus would come, the anointed one, and stand on our behalf and open up the access to the King of Kings. And give us free access to that relationship, that restored relationship that we lost. We have at this time in our storyline, we, um, we have what's called the wisdom literature. And um, that was in the time of Solomon, inspired by Solomon, much of it. We have the Psalms and the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon, Job. This is known in our Bible as the wisdom literature. It's a kind of writing that um, shares the wisdom of God in different ways. It's the Psalms, the 150 Psalms of the Songbook of Israel, the Prayer Book of Israel. You know, if I'm going to confess to you something about a song that we sing sometimes by the Rend Collective, and it's celebrate, celebrate, even with a broken heart. And it always grates on me, that song. <laughs> yeah. 
I understand what they're saying. I bring, bring your worship, even when your heart is breaking. But what I find in the Psalms is, is an honesty, is sometimes a lament, is sometimes just a life sucks, God. Why do my enemies seem to be prospering? Why is nothing going right? Why is it that when I'm following you still, nothing is going right and the, and the unrighteous seem to prevail? And, and the Psalms, what they do is they are so rawly honest before God. There's lament. There's exuberant worship. There's top of the mountain times and, and bottom of the valley times. And I guess what grates on me about that song is... is it's just like, I'm going to celebrate even with a broken heart. I think sometimes, no, I'm not going to celebrate with a broken heart. I'm going to cry. <laughs> and I'm going to lament. And I'm going to say I don't feel like worshipping God. And, but you're still a good God. And like Job, the wisdom literature, even though he slays me, yet will I trust him. Even when everything goes wrong, I'm still going to trust him. But life sucks right now. And life is hard right now. And so we have the Psalms and we have the Proverbs. The Proverbs are like the Twitter of the Bible. Like so many characters, just little pithy sayings that are in the Proverbs. The Twitter feed of practical wisdom for everyday life. And we have Ecclesiastes, which reflects how empty and meaningless life can be. You know, did you see that uh, Matthew Perry has died this week from Friends? Yeah. Chandler from Friends has died. It's so sad, 54 years old. And what Ecclesiastes reminds us is, is that life, Jenny said it today, life is so short. <laughs> so you better live it well. And you better seize the day. And you better enjoy the good gifts that God has given you, the food and the drink and the, and the daily things that God has given you because life is really short. And so live it well and live it to the full. And there's, a, there's wisdom in Ecclesiastes on how to live life in, in light of death, in light of the fact that life is short and that we're all going to die one day. And that in view of that, let's live life backwards, let's live life well. And there's wisdom in Ecclesiastes and in Proverbs and, and in Job and in the suffering of Job. And then there's the Song of Solomon, which... I can't quite get my head around. I've never preached on the Song of Solomon. <laughs> I'm going to leave that to Dave. Because <laughs> if there's a parental warning on judges, <laughs> there's a sexual content, scenes of a sexual nature in Song of Solomon, celebrating sex as a gift from God within the covenant of marriage. But it also captures the greater love of God for his people. And Job, which shows us that life isn't always fair and it isn't always easy and sometimes bad things happen to good people but that in all of it we can trust God and hang on to hope in the tough times. The Bible has all sorts of communication styles and as we're reading it and as we find ourselves in the story we need to realize that this is narrative and this is wisdom literature and this is poetry and these are the Psalms and there's the different styles of writing and wisdom is having the skill to live life well and making good life choices. And the other thing to realize about the wisdom literature, that it's general principles, it's not promises. And it's got to be read in light of the whole Bible. Wisdom in the Bible is like a compass. It's like true north. I, um, I did the coast-to-coast -coast walk a year or two ago from the west coast of England to the east, right over to the east coast, through the, through the Lake District and the Yorkshire Dales and, and, and the moors. And it, it, was, it was wonderful. But what really helped me is that I had an app on my phone, an ordnance survey app. And uh, I followed it every day as I had to walk my various miles. And sometimes I was in the middle of the North York moors and... Uh, it was raining and it was foggy and I couldn't see a hundred meters ahead of me. But I had, my, I had my app and I had my map and it showed me when I was going off course and I've got a terrible, terrible sense of direction. But the line was there and I could see even in the middle of the moors, even in the fog, even in the mist, even in the rain, I could see when I was going off course. 
because I had the map and I had, I had the true north and I, I could tell where I was going and, and so sometimes I'd lose my way and I'd have to re-steer and, and get back on course and amazingly enough, someone with so little sense of direction managed to walk from the west coast to the east coast without getting lost. And what the Bible does and what the wisdom literature does and every piece of scripture like that ordnance survey map in the fog and in the rain and in the midst, mist and in the darkness and sometimes I felt so like alone, like I am in the middle of nowhere here. There's no, there's no, no kind of nothing to steer by but I'm going I'm to trust this map. And what the Bible does is it leads us like that. So Proverbs 3 verse 5 says, trust in the Lord. With all your heart, don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He will direct your paths. As you trust him, as you follow him, as you follow his word. And so in this part of our story, as I wrap this up tonight, as, we've, as we trace from Genesis through to Joshua and Judges and Kings and Chronicles and Samuel and in through to the wisdom literature, it's written about those times and, and inspired by Solomon. What we have is the story of human heart and human desire to follow God, but human failure, failure of leadership, failure of humanity. But we have in Jesus, we have the ultimate judge. We have in Jesus the ultimate kinsman Redeemer. We have in Jesus the ultimate king. We have in Jesus the anointed one. We have a king whom we can follow. I'm going to invite the band back up now to join me. And I think many of us in our lives, we experience, we experience moments like Job. We experience moments like the judges where everyone does what's right in their own heart and we experience these cycles sometimes of failure and disappointment but we have in Jesus um, the ultimate savior the ultimate redeemer the ultimate judge the ultimate anointed one and as we were singing this morning the song about speaking the name of Jesus it struck me we proclaim Jesus. We proclaim his name. We proclaim it on the streets. We were singing it this morning. And I was thinking, you know, we speak out the name of Jesus in so many different ways. And I was thinking of the Bible and I was thinking of the woman who was bent double with pain. And I was thinking of her working her way through the crowds and probably calling out the name of Jesus. It's not, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a proclamation of victory or success. It was, it was Jesus. Jesus, let me just touch you. And I was, thinking of, I was thinking of the blind man sat by the side of the road, probably bypassed by the crowds who were thronging around Jesus and he he shouts out, Jesus, son of David, Jesus, have mercy on me. It wasn't a great victory proclamation. It was speaking the name of Jesus from a place of pain and a place of blindness. And I was thinking of Peter as he was sinking in the waves in his doubt and his moment of fear and he'd, he'd had a moment of faith, but then it failed him. And as he's sinking in the waves, he calls out the name of Jesus. Jesus. Jesus, help me, I'm sinking here. And I was thinking of all of these people, and I was thinking of Mary and Martha. Jesus, if only you'd come earlier. Our brother wouldn't have died. If only you'd been there, Jesus. We wouldn't be facing this pain that we find ourselves in, and this bereavement and this loss. Jesus, would you help us? And I, I think many of us, you know, we have our cycles of failure and we have our 
times of pain, we have our ups and downs, we have our looking for times of wisdom, and we find ourselves in this story, like Adam and Eve, and this broken world that we live in, and, and sometimes we think, what a wonderful world, but sometimes we think, it is so broken, and so twisted, and we think that about ourselves as well, but we speak the name of Jesus, and sometimes we speak the name of Jesus because we're on top of the world and we want to proclaim Jesus and proclaim his name and his victory. But sometimes we're like the woman doubled up. Sometimes we're like Peter. Sometimes we're like the blind man. Sometimes we're like Mary and Martha. And we call out from a place of pain and hopelessness, Jesus, help me. Help me, Jesus. Because he is the anointed one. He is the ultimate judge. He is the king of kings. And we have full access. He has rescued us. He has saved us. He's broken the cycle of failure. He's come to save us. To rescue us. And tonight you can call on the ultimate anointed one. You can call on Jesus. You can call that name. So why don't you stand with me for a moment? I wonder what kind of tale we have fallen into. <laughs> this is our story. Sometimes our life is funny. Oh, sometimes we laugh. Sometimes it's tragedy. Sometimes it's soap opera. But in this great story, God has a plan of salvation. And he is there for you. And he will rescue you. And he will save you. And he will lift you up. And he will uphold you. So we're going to sing this song that we sang this morning. I speak Jesus. And I don't care how you speak the name of Jesus tonight. For you it might be, yeah, Jesus. I'm on top of the world. For some of you, you might just be whispering the name, Jesus, please, Jesus, help me. But as we proclaim the name of Jesus, the Spirit of the Lord, Jesus said, is upon me because I have come. I've come for the brokenhearted. I've come for the lost. I've come for those that have lost their way. I've come to save them and rescue them and heal them and restore them. And he's come for you. He's come for you.